Hello there. So you can say what you want about governments, but they're ultimately abstract collectivist entities that only exist because people believe in them and enforce their wills to the extent that they can. Force is how they are defined with language added only to convince people that what's being done is necessary. Either that or people are distracted from what's going on almost entirely, in which case it's even truer that nothing need be defined. Many, if not most, of the goals of policy are secret and irrelevant to the general population, and many people actually don't care about military force as long as it's not applied directly against them or loved ones. This has been demonstrated again and again, and not just by American society by any means. We have many problems in the world that in normal circumstances seem insurmountable. And let's be honest, many of these problems may be invented basically out of thin air, as in one culture wants to impose its values on others through force, thus creating a conflict. And that is why there is always some degree of folly in thinking we can force solutions to all of our problems. Reality does not work like that. That inevitably ends up creating conflict, which, if we want to phrase it poetically, phrase away at the social fabric. Because of how propagandized we Americans are, it's easy to think that only the U.S. can do something about these problems or those problems, when in fact it's in the realm of issues between the U.S. and many other countries, at least a lot of the time. Hell, you could say that every issue has some universal implications, right? So even though we like to separate ourselves from the rest of the world, you know, there there's a general argument to be made that, you know, we're all human beings, we're all related to each other in some way, and a lot of the barriers that we create are actually just artificial and therefore flimsy. Plus, the American population has a deficit in power anyway, as the system becomes less and less democratic, so it can't necessarily act in its own best interests, let alone in the best interests of others. So that's why we end up with so many different divergent groups sort of flailing against each other and all that kind of goodness. We can do much, but other countries are often large and complicated entities too, and we can't always use the tools that are most effective in one place to solve a problem in another, despite what some believe. So that's another issue that really complicates things. And that's me being generous by putting aside all of the catastrophic and horrible things the United States has done to other countries and to its own population throughout its history. And of course, it's, yet again, it's not just the United States that has abused you know, its own population or other populations. So no, this is not just, you know, some somebody saying anti-American things, to use that rather stupid expression, all right? This is just like a general statement about human history and the human experience. And technology won't be any panacea either, as it can sometimes complicate things even further,
as we have seen with social media and how it feeds rabid delusional conspiracy theories, I mean, that's perfectly relevant to a lot of what's going on today. So Larry Massenter, described by Pew Research as an internet pioneer, formerly with Adobe, AT&T Labs, and Xerox, and he helped create the internet and web standards that are often applied today. Anyway, he has been quoted as saying, quote, technology and social innovation intended to overcome the negatives of the digital age will likely cause additional negative consequences, end quote. Again, that's from an article by Pew Research. And it's it's kind of a, a downer quote, but nonetheless factual. You know, I mean, we can even look at some of the stuff going on anecdotally. Does social media or, quote unquote, the digital age actually exacerbate certain problems? And as much as I, I would like to be sort of an anti-Ted Kaczynski here, I have to agree that it, it does create some unique hurdles. So while the internet has allowed some intelligent people to become successful, and if we're talking politics, even to become activists, I would never say it has been totally negative or unsuccessful. It is not without its own pitfalls, and it's easy to get lazy and start relying on the internet too much for any kind of, you know, organizing or activism. Um, well, he, here's a little hint right off the bat. You know, n nothing beats actually meeting with people face-to-face. -face. I think it's just as important to fine-tune one's messaging, and I admit I don't always succeed at that myself. But let's look at how the warmongers of society rationalize their beliefs. Obviously, they capitalize on a few key basic assumptions. If the U.S. didn't use military force to enforce its policy, or if other countries did something that directly threatened the United States, that would be a direct threat to American security. So that's obviously one of the uh, basic explanations slash justifications. And it, it sort of makes sense, right? But of course, in order to understand what's going on in the world, you can't just wave a flag and cheer every time the U.S. goes to war or threatens to go to war. That's the behavior of some totalitarian state. Even someone like Elihu Root, who served as Secretary of War under two presidents before founding the American Society of International Law in 1906, he stated, quote, in the great business of settling international controversies without war, essential conditions are reasonableness and good temper, a willingness to recognize facts and to weigh arguments which make against one's own country as well as those which make for one's own country, end quote. So you don't really have that if you have this rabid nationalism that's uh, boiling over and, you know, a rabid fervor and all that kind of stuff. That's sort of like the opposite of that scenario, right? So this idea isn't new, nor is it very popular. And that's, of course, some, some aspect of the struggle as well. 
you know, the, the message of, you know, calming things down is not always that popular. And even when it's more popular than you think it is, well, the media will give you the impression often that it's less popular. However, it's called protecting the real national security of the country to uh, not be a rabid nationalist. And it's not just about the supposed national defense interests of Warhawk extremists and the military industrial complex and war profiteers and all those types. Of course, the fundamentalist loons are thrown into, into that mix as well. And we have to be real. Any country that's willing to attack another nation without a second thought will inevitably also be willing to wage war on its own citizens when the moment arrives. And they will use talk of national security and all that jazz to justify it too. Of course, there's a danger about you know, bringing that up because I will sound like a conspiracy theorist myself, right? Anytime you say that, you will sound like maybe you're being paranoid. Um, so that's, of course, one of the pitfalls of that particular conversation. But nevertheless, if you actually look at history, you will see some honest-to-goodness uh, scenarios where that exact same thing happens. And you can see it on a micro scale all, already with the militarization of police departments uh, throughout the United States and certain unjust laws that have been cropping up that essentially, you know, wage war on the population and in certain respects, you know, uh, the uh, puritanical kind of laws that we're seeing are certainly rolled up into that whole effort. The idea is that if the security of the country is threatened, the government does something drastic like declare martial law, but it's the only thing it can do in that situation, even if the effects of that action are negative for the country as a whole. You know, God damn it, man, I had no choice. We, we had to have martial law, you know, to restore order and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, with the, with, with the way the authoritarians are, you know, creeping about into... Uh, not only major noticeable political offices, but these, you know, these smaller roles with the way that's going on, you know, of, of course, this is an increasing danger. And, uh, you know, I don't want, again, I don't want to sound paranoid, but this shit is real right now. If we wish to prevent such scenarios from getting worse, we need to reel in our intake of mindless permanent wartime propaganda even a little bit, take a deep breath, relax, and remind ourselves we don't have to be maniacs, all right? You know, I mean, oddly enough, part of the solution to this, in my, in my opinion, is just getting people to, like, calm down, you know, uh, you know, get them distracted into some, you know, avenues that are healthier, not just for themselves, but for the country. And I, I do think that is possible. Um, but, it, you know, it, it, is, it is a struggle. Plus, having other nations monitor us during our bizarre and calamitous times right now might not be such a bad idea. Of course, there are pitfalls to that as well, because 
then you will be feeding some uh, paranoid conspiracy theories if you try to get that happen. Happening, I should say. But, you know, like, if if other countries were to, like, you know, f- find ways to help, <laughs> to help the craziness subside a little bit, that could be a good thing. In fact, if people like Donald Trump really cared about election security, they would want some theoretically independent entity, such as the UN, to do so. But of course, his conspiracy-addled crowd would just regard the UN monitoring as just another feather in their conspiratorial uh, cap. So there's just no winning with someone like Trump. And notice that I almost said crap instead of cap. (laughs) So that that would have been a flubbed line. But uh, in in a way, it still would have fit. Still, there is wisdom in the very basics of one of the UN Charter's mission statements that it intends to save succeeding generations from the scourge of war. And uh, I think I think that's an honorable goal. I think that in order to do that, we need either the, the United Nations or something like the UN, and we need to make sure that we don't have these rabid nationalists at the helm of not just the United States, but really any country. You know, any country that has like a, I guess, a supremacist type of approach to things is is not good for the world. You know, we should have learned the lessons from the two world wars, that rabid nationalist sentiment just isn't going to cut it. You know, it's it's not only a danger to other countries and other people, but of course, a danger also to the... Uh, nationalist countries themselves because inevitably if if those uh you know if those systems get too out of hand and they get too warlike and start invading others well then other countries will have to gang up on that country and basically try to take their twisted leadership out of the equation right that's what literally happened to nazi germany and uh Obviously, with the Cold War, it didn't quite get like that with Russia, but they had these internal reforms that were eventually deemed necessary. And um, one of the problems with authoritarianism is that once things get bad enough and, uh, you know, these, these countries start gaining enough of a foothold, well, other countries, and I guess other you know, uh, political ideologies will have to almost start being more fascistic themselves or have more totalitarian methods, um, unless we're talking about outright pacifists. But the problem with pacifism is that it only works if, you, you know, the regime in question cares about things like hunger strikes. You know, um, that that doesn't matter so much if the uh, the twisted leaders actually like to see people starving, and if the population likes to see, you know, people being persecuted and whatnot. So pacifism is a great idea. I'm not trying to knock it, but it's really only effective if it's effective, I guess. <laughs> um, so anyway, all of this stuff, you know, that this uh, nationalism 
is often presented as either in, in some inevitability or a choice. And I guess I want to ask you, what do you think it is? Do you think these things are inevitable? Or do you think they are things that we choose to do? You know, like, is it something to do with fate, almost like a cosmic, maybe almost a religious thing? Or is there some uh, just more plain down-to-earth motive that just happens to get a lot of people swept into it? So, all right, that's about all I have to say about it. And uh, you have a good day.